0: I'm jumping in with a quick message that I've added to all HR Coffee Time episodes to let you know that my group programme, Inspiring HR, is back. In case you haven't heard of it before, it's an intensive six week programme for mid and senior level HR and people professionals. So if you're an HR business partner, HR manager, head of HR, or HR director, Or the people equivalent, so a people business partner, people manager, head of people or people director, and you'd like to build your confidence, your credibility and your impact at work, Inspiring HR could be perfect for you. We get started on Wednesday the 5th of June 2024 when we'll be meeting up over Zoom for two hours every week. The group sessions are a blend of group coaching training and facilitation they're supportive encouraging and practical and each week has a slightly different focus so in week one we look at setting yourself up for success week two is about boosting your confidence week three focuses on being strategic in your role week four is all about building key relationships Week five takes a deep dive into influencing at a senior level and the final week looks at planning for the future. There's a link with the full details in the show notes for you or you can learn more by going to my website Bright Sky Career Coaching, clicking on services and then clicking on Inspiring HR Group Programme. I would love to have you join us and to get to know you throughout the programme, but if you have any questions about inspiring HR at all, please feel free to ask by getting in touch through the website and I would be very happy to answer them for you. Welcome to HR Coffee Time, a podcast to help you have a successful and fulfilling career without working yourself into the ground. I'm your host, Faye Wallace, a career and executive coach with a background in HR, and I'm also the founder of Bright Sky Career Coaching. This week's episode focuses on the not working yourself into the ground part of my message. We have a fantastic guest called Tom Cleary from Train Your Mind joining us on the show today, and he shares the one thing that will boost your resilience throughout your HR career. I really hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say and that you find the episode helpful. But before I dive into this week's episode, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Did you download the free version of my HR planner for 2022? Or did you buy the hardback version? If you did, I would love to hear from you to hear how you're getting on with it. What you like about it and how it's helped you. But I'd also love to know if there's anything you'd like me to add to it or change about it for next year, because I'll be starting work on getting the 2023 HR planner ready soon, even though I know it's not going to be released for a while. I want to make sure I'm organised with it so I don't end up feeling rushed and I know I do as good a job as possible on it for you. So I would be really grateful for your feedback to let me know your thoughts, please feel free to drop me an email at fay at brightskycareercoaching.co.uk or send me a message through LinkedIn. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Welcome to the show, Tom. It is wonderful to have you here. And I thought a great starting point for us today would be for me to ask you to share your story of how you became interested in resilience and wellbeing at work.
1: Hi, Faye, great to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. Yes, of course. I've always been really interested in psychology and self-development from a really surprisingly young age, actually, but much less so in mental health and well-being. And I was one of those people, actually, who used to be quite an eye roller, and I would avoid topics like that. And the change happened when I experienced a complete burnout of my own. So I was a a leader in a school in quite a toxic environment, to be fair, at the time. But over time, anxiety developed, stress increased to the point where I'm very much not myself. And out of the blue, at the time, in hindsight, very much a lot of warning signs going on there. But I walked out of school one day and had a complete kind of breakdown, basically. And I was signed off from work for about two months, and it was a huge shift in my career and life in general. And I'd gone from that person who thought, well, this sort of thing happens so those people over there, to becoming one of those those people. And so I had a big sort of think about what I wanted to do next, and I thought I love the and kind of the mentoring and the coaching development of people that came from the teaching and leadership, but wanted to move that into well-being and the mental health in the workplace and Help people not go through what I did. So a very personal reason behind why I do what I do.
0: And I'm so sorry to hear that that you had that experience. But very pleased that you're feeling a little better now.
1: Thank you. Yes, it was, at the time it was very much kind of the worst that could possibly happen. At the moment, it's like I'm so pleased it did because it really made me reevaluate what's important in life, and I can now. Genuinely help people, which is important to me.
0: And from all of this help that you're able to give to people and help them build their resilience, there is one thing that you are going to be sharing with us in particular today. So I'm sure that everyone listening is waiting on tenterhooks to find out what this is. Can you share it with us now?
1: Yes, I can. It's something called self compassion. And this is where I really wish I could see the listeners because I love watching the reaction when I say that phrase. But I'll come back to that in a minute. But yes, self-compassion.
0: Yeah. And we purposefully (laughs) kept the word self-compassion out of the title of this show, didn't we? Because so often messages like, look after yourself, be kind to yourself, seem to just switch people off. Like you were just saying, you thought, well, burnout's something that happens to other people. And yeah, I hadn't hadn't really had that focus on it before. And I know that for me personally, when being part of a business leadership programme, The only module in the program that I skipped was the one on well-being. I remember thinking, I don't have time for this, which was probably a classic sign that I should have been making time. So why do you think it is that we resist listening to these sorts of things and resist hearing things like we need to have self-compassion?
1: It's it's a really common thing that people do, and, and I used to do as well. A lot of the talks I give to teams, I actually ask people how they feel about topics like this. And I put up on the screen a picture of somebody doing a massive eye roll and say, if this is you, even behind the scenes, that's okay. You're allowed to feel that way. And there's lots of reasons um, for that. And when I talk about self-compassion in particular, I will never put it into the titles because I know that people and me a few years ago would have not attended that particular thing. And if you've got any listeners right now who are thinking, oh, this sounds a bit willy and fluffy and reaching for the kind of skip button i'm going to ask you just bear with me for a moment with it because it's much more than you might might think it is but we tend to get lots of um, our defenses coming up thinking about or uncomfortable i'm not sure about that and i will see people in the room who physically will sit back cross their arms go "Mm -mm, no not not joining with this and i love those people but there are lots of reasons why this particular thing is so important I'll, I'll define it first so you've got some idea about what we're talking about here as well so self-compassion is in a really simple form is about treating yourself in the same supportive way that you would treat a close friend which sounds really simple but in practice it, it often isn't for multiple reasons and um, one of the biggest researchers in the field is a, a person called Kristen Neff and she defines this self-compassion idea as, as three different things. So you've got mindfulness, which in this kind of context just means, can we see the reality of what's going on? Because a lot of the time, what we will do is either minimize and deny what's happening and you know, just look away from those things that are a bit uncomfortable or annoying, or we will blow things up into an even bigger thing than they are already. So the mindfulness part is about, can we actually see the reality of a situation as a starting point? Then you have this self-kindness part. So treating yourself, talking to yourself, supporting yourself in the way that you would somebody that you genuinely do care about. We often don't do that. And the last bit is something called a sort of shared human experience. Because our tendency when things go wrong is to shut ourselves away. You wouldn't pick up the phone and go, do you know what? I've had a fantastic day today. I failed miserably at everything that I've done we don't like to kind of admit that we make mistakes and that we're human, but the research shows that when we embrace things going wrong and see it as something which happens to everybody, our resilience is, is far, far stronger. But I'm very aware that when talking about this kind of topic, people will shy away from it, they will turn off from it. So yes, and I can tell you if it's helpful a bit more about bringing me into the topic, if that's useful for your listeners as well.
0: Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to hear that. And I'm sure they would too.
1: (laughs) So I had a mindfulness teacher just after my my burnout, and she spoke to me originally about this. And I'm not a very fluffy person. And um, I thought, oh, self-kindness and self-compassion. No, 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 thank you. Not for me. And I asked her if I could skip the, the module. And as she often did, she said, let's do even more work on that because there's a reason why you're wanting to stay away from it. And I did, but I also, I like evidence. and I like seeing that things work. So for me, it's taken some time to get over the initial hurdle of the words words, and the phrase sounding a bit woolly and unicorns and rainbows to go, okay, there's an enormous body of very strong evidence um, here. And seeing it being used in athletes at the highest level, including in the Olympics, we've had stories over the past year about top tier medalists and, and Olympic athletes, et cetera, who are burning out with mental health and wellbeing concerns. So we're seeing places like the True Athlete Project taking the self-compassion research in. I'm seeing it in CEO's research, so people running enormous companies, how they are using self-compassion with that. And even in the military, it's being shown to reduce trauma, reduce PTSD, and even to reduce suicide rates as well. So for me, the amount of evidence out there really was a turning point. While evidence and research is one thing, for me, I have to see it in my clients. And after the last four and a half, five years, seeing groups of leaders and teams applying something which they're sceptical about to start with and then going, I feel so much better, more in control, able to cope. That's been, for me, that kind of evidence, it really does, does work.
0: That's brilliant to hear. And I know when we've been chatting about the topic before and you mentioned the Olympic athletes there was something that stuck with me, which was that in the military, they won't necessarily use the word self-compassion. They've brought in their own lingo to make it, I suppose, sound more appealing to people. What I can't remember though what it was that they called it. What, what was it that they were doing?
1: There's multiple times this happens actually. So I'll use an even more recent example where a group of CEOs who run large academy trusts, you could see in the room the moment I said compassion they went "Mm -mm, no not for me so I said great that's my next slide because I've got a slide on language matters because for many people and you do have roles like the military for example who will associate self-compassion with weakness or pity or getting away from things the opposite of what they're trying to do so very often you'll change keywords so there's a keyword within self-compassion research and practice which is suffering And some people really don't like that. So they'll change that into struggle, into challenge, into stress. And they'll change kindness or compassion into protecting, comforting, looking after. So something that's a little bit more neutral behind that. But it's normally per group they will work out. And then once people realise what this thing is, there's often less resistance to the word. But it might be a way in there for many people about just changing the word and what feels comfortable for them in that moment
0: yeah, it's funny how just these tiny tweets can make a real difference in getting a message across, isn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so. And I the same thing with mindfulness, I have clients who are absolutely categorically practicing mindfulness, but they will not use that word. they will we will call it attention and awareness training instead, because for them it removes the baggage of what mindfulness has been previously to them with perhaps some different ways of uh, approaching it. But the language is a really either a really good support to things that we're doing with like this, or can be a huge hurdle. So it's important to work out for each of us who might be going into this, what the language is that works for us as a team as well.
0: And thinking about self-compassion, I think that HR and people professionals are particularly at risk of not being self-compassionate because so much of the time the focus is on helping everyone else. So what are some of the signs that we aren't being self-compassionate? So this is something we need to really be thinking about.
1: I would firstly completely agree with that assessment. Okay, right? There are certain groups I work with who I notice with a lot. So teachers are a big group with this, and people working in HR are another. For the exact reason you said, the focus is continuously on other people and looking after them. So we become used to doing this more than almost anyone else does. What I get people to do is just to start to tune into when that critical voice that we all have um, starts becoming a bit louder thinking about, are you giving yourself that support that people are getting from you in the team when they are struggling? People often go, oh, wow, no, they, they weren't. In fact, I had a, a group yesterday evening and we talked about this and someone said, I've just realized I am always the very last person on my priority list. And that's very true for many HR professionals that I that I work with. So when things go to, don't go to plan, are you starting to sort of beat yourself up and be, again, increasingly critical about that? our expectations beginning to get higher. And ultimately, you start noticing things like people disengaging from their role, which then leads into things like burnout. So the little steps there of noticing how critical we are and the the difference between what we're being like to ourselves one moment and the next moment being really kind to someone in our team, just start tuning into those things.
0: And do you know why we do that? Why we can be so incredibly hard on ourselves and so mean to ourselves, what is it that makes practising self-compassion so difficult?
1: How much time do you have, Faye? Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll have the highlights.
1: (laughs) There's lots of reasons. So I'll give you some of the key ones. So in terms of people's upbringing and culture and language, we have baked in being tough on ourselves into things like the language, things like stiff upper lip, grin and bear it. And we often have role models who, with the best intentions, are modelling the opposite of self-compassion there's also an element of self-esteem. Human beings, uh, we've been taught over the years that one of the best things we can do is increase our self-esteem. And there's reasons for that, because low self-esteem can be linked to things like depression, for example. The problem is with high self-esteem, not what it is, but how we get it, we have to feel above average from other people. And if I say to somebody in a group um, about something important to them, you're an average leader, you're an average parent, it's not taken as a compliment, we don't, we don't like that. So we then have to be above average, and um, even those who, like myself, aren't great at math can work out, we can't all be above average all the time. So we start to try and either puff ourselves up or bring other people down. With children, you see it's bringing people down, you see bullying sometimes coming in. With adults, we start to actually you know, bring ourselves down in a weird way, we attack ourselves as the problem for not being good enough, for not being above average. And it's something which also links into the human need for control. When something goes wrong in our life, we immediately go into problem-solving mode and try to fix it. And we think that we can be, we can do this with being harder on ourselves because we aren't quite good enough the, the first time. And also a lot of people, again, like the military example earlier, some people see it as self-compassion is being self-indulgent about pity and getting away with things as well. And it's really not. And I would encourage the listeners who you know, maybe feel like that to Google something called fierce self-compassion, where the examples of things like in the animal kingdom, um, you know, a lion is protecting her cubs or in the HR world, if you've got somebody protecting their team from an unfair decision that's going on, you really want to sort of stand up for people and, and fight for that. That's also part of, of compassion. And the last bit I'll say, if we've got a little bit of time, just to squeeze one last in apology space, is that we are used to being critical. It's uncomfortable being kind to ourselves. We've become very used to those kind of habits about being kind to other people and not to ourselves. And if something does go wrong, it feels more comfortable and safe to be in the role of self-critic and telling yourself off, rather than the role of the person who actually did something wrong. So we have multiple reasons why and this is why I said that although it sounds really simple oh just be kind to yourself doing it in practice can be a very hard thing to actually do.
0: Oh thank you for explaining all of that i never really thought about the idea of building your self-esteem can mean thinking that you've got to be better or above average. That's really interesting. Thanks, Tom. You've given me lots to think about (laughs) afterwards as well. So now that you've convinced all of us that self-compassion can boost our resilience and that we really need to start thinking about being kinder to ourselves, what are some of the steps that we could all be taking to become more self-compassionate?
1: It's a really good question. And it's something where there's an, an important element to this answer It's very much a small steps approach. You won't get out of decades, for most of us refreshing me, of kind of habits just by doing a little exercise that goes on. So thinking about that in terms of can I make a small change? Because what some people do, in fact, I would say many people I work with do, is they realise that they aren't very self-compassionate and they then beat themselves up for not being so passionate enough, which is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, obviously. So firstly, recognising and celebrating those little changes. So the first big step, even though it seems really small, is just having a greater awareness of your current starting point. Without that awareness, we can't make any changes. People tend to dismiss that or, again, beat themselves up for for doing it. But we can celebrate that part of it. And then i actually recommend a book uh, towards the end which will help move people through it but it is little bits the best thing that I recommend to clients starting off is to try to work out what is your go-to phrase when something goes wrong we tend to all have one write it down and then I want you to think of a slightly more positive phrase instead you can start replacing it with now don't make that too kind of airy-fairy and overly optimistic because your brain will know if you're lying to yourself but rather than the very critical version can you come up with a more positive, more optimistic version, which is still realistic? And I get people to do, if people are quite visual, most of my clients are, I will get them to have the old phrase in big black marker pen on a a red piece of card and the new phrase in big black marker pen on a green piece of card. Have it somewhere on their desk, somewhere they're going to see it. And every time they catch themselves using the red phrase, they pause and they reframe it into that new phrase. That little step sounds really basic, but it does make a huge difference down the line.
0: Oh, have you got an example of what someone might have moved from and to to help bring it to life?
1: We will try not to. Yeah, well, most people use words that are like inappropriate for the podcast. Um, <laughs> 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 so, an example a lot of people do is, Oh, you're such an idiot. Why do you always make mistakes? Into, okay, it went wrong this time. What can I learn from this the next time? So, it can be as simple as that. And you're not being overly optimistic with that. But the critical voice we tend to have is normally. Very, very much one that is that self berating why are you so stupid? Why are people better than you? Why can't you do this? You idiot. And also, when we catch ourselves, the tone of voice that we use with it as well is one that we would not use on people we didn't like, let alone somebody we were trying to support. So, when we use the new phrase, like, oh, okay, you made a mistake. How can we make this better for next time? It's the change in tone of voice as well. So, again, if you're speaking to somebody that you genuinely cared about and we're going, okay, yeah, you got something wrong there. Let's work out how we can fix this. You are taking that language and that tone of voice, not for just other people, but onto yourself, who hopefully you should care about as well as the people on your teams and in your family and friends, etc.
0: It's funny the reframing. It's so powerful. It's something that I've talked about on the podcast a couple of times before. It's just one of those things that seems to come up again and again and again. But like you said it takes practice and it takes sticking at these things to really make the difference. Just saying to yourself once, oh, I caught myself being horrible to myself in my mind once. Let me reframe that. Just once isn't going to be enough. We've really got to keep on trying going with these things, haven't we?
1: We do. And that's why I'm I'm very much a fan of visual props and, and cues. So um, most of my clients and teams will have, if they're working from home, it's often on the fridge. If they're working in office, it's somewhere on their desk. I have some clients who have reminders as the backdrop of their phone for example as well or a photograph library on there as well because you want something you want a really small thing to become habitual and then you can build on that a lot of clients I work with they will jump into trying to make an enormous change maintain it for maybe a few weeks and then they'll drop back so I'm a really big believer in let's make something which is attainable which you genuinely make common practice for you and then build on that The bit which I find helps people the most is actually that tone of voice bit. Whenever you are supporting somebody, just have a little reminder of, okay, what's my body language like? What's my tone of voice like with this other person? And when I'm beating myself a little bit for doing something wrong, how am I speaking to myself? And even I've recorded people, with their permission, obviously, um, who are doing this, and they are surprised that when they have these moments of um, being self-critical, They will physically kind of shrink into themselves, clench fists, raise shoulders, et cetera, in a way as if they were angry at somebody else. So just tuning into those little tiny bits, the more awareness we can build, that's the biggest starting point we can get for this.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. I hadn't thought before of doing a big visual cue for the reframing your language. You've made me think, "Hmm, I need to get two big bits of cards and have a listen to what my Inner critic saying to me and then reframe it, thanks, Tom. That's a really practical, simple takeaway that I know we can all take away from hearing you today. Can I be really greedy and ask you for one more tip then? So for anyone listening who thinks, right, okay, I'm I'm going to do that. I'm going to reframe the way I speak to myself. And I'm going to stick at it. I'm going to have my visual cues. So once we've really mastered that, what would the next step be in helping someone be more self-compassionate?
1: I'm a very big believer in people valuing their strengths because what tends to happen is if we are very good at something, we take it for granted and we're constantly focused on the thing that we can't do or need to do better at next time. So with a lot of my clients and teams I work with, I will get them to think about what is something which you are really good at, but you never really celebrate. And then every single day, I want you to actually find an example when you're doing really well with that and congratulate yourself for, for doing that. So I've got somebody I'm working with at the moment who is one of the best listeners I've ever met. And that's actually quite a rare skill, sadly, I would say, for in the environment we're in these days. She's brilliant, but she doesn't realise it and she's taking it for granted. Everyone tells her that, but she doesn't she, oh, it's fine, she brushes it off. I know it's an easy thing for me to come it comes naturally. So every time somebody says to her, you know, thank you for really listening to me, I'm asking her to go, do you know what, that's a really great skill that I've got and celebrating that because we we don't acknowledge our, our strengths anywhere near enough, I think.
0: Oh, I completely agree. We were just chatting before hitting record, weren't we? And I was saying to you how I'm running the Inspiring HR group programme for the first time in the very first week of that, our focus was on confidence. And so we were talking about strengths. Actually, I think we might've talked about strengths in the second week as well. I think you're right. We often just don't realise what it is we're really good at. And so then we're very dismissive about it. Mm -hmm. So this idea though, that you've said of really acknowledging that and recognising when you're using that strength and congratulating yourself for it. I can already feel myself thinking, oh no, that feels cringy. I don't want to be congratulating myself for stuff. That feels all weird and wrong. How can you congratulate yourself in a way that doesn't feel a bit icky and uncomfortable?
1: I love that question. Yes, because again, it's something we're not used to doing. So, it's not a case of going, oh, you know, Faye, you're so incredible. Well done you for being this amazing person who does It's like, okay, good job. It can be as simple as that. Good job. I've had one person who does a mini fist pump when they do something right. It's, it's really, it's really, people wouldn't notice they were doing it. It's a really small thing that they do. But you do a small gesture or a small phrase, which feels comfortable for you. So um, when I started doing it, it was like, good work, Tom. It was really, it was really small. It wasn't over top because I don't like praise from myself or other people. I didn't before. I shied away from it massively. So I was really uncomfortable. So I had to find a way of going, all right, yeah, you did a good, good okay, that's all right. And you can start with that and then you can build up when they kind of, yeah, good job, Tom, is feels comfortable. So it's like, actually, do you know what, Tom, that was that was really quite quite well done today, well done. And you build up in little bits, but find a point, find a phrase or a gesture which is comfortable for you, but means celebration. I have one person who is really anti, probably even worse than I was when I started, who just does a kind of thumb and and finger um, press when they do something really well. No one knows what they're doing, but they know that we talked about it for them. They know that's them going, okay, yep, I, I did okay with that. And that's all they can start with. And I know in two months' time, they'll be like, yeah, go on, I can I can do this. Because that's the way it tends to go. But the starting point has to be comfortable. We won't do it at all.
0: Oh, that is brilliant to hear. Yes, that definitely feels a lot less cringy. the idea of just kind of pressing your finger and thumb together. <laughs> As little steps, isn't it, with these things? Oh, Tom, I could talk to you about this for hours, but I think it'd be a little bit unfair of me to, <laughs> to ask you for, for lots and lots and lots more tips. Instead, I know you've already mentioned a book. You haven't told us what it is yet. You've got us on Tenter hooks again. So would you be happy to share with us all what book it is you'd recommend that could be really helpful?
1: I will. And actually, I'm a big fan of people um, being able to do something practical. There's a lot of information out there and sometimes it can be very hard to put that into practice. And Christian Neff, who I mentioned earlier, has written this book with Christopher Germer, who's also done some amazing work on self-compassion. It's called the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. And what it does is it tells you the theory and the background of self-compassion. At the end of each chapter, or sometimes in the middle of it, there's an exercise, a really small, simple one you can do, which often will acknowledge that feeling of discomfort that you might have from, from doing it. So small steps, you build up next chapter a bit more information a bit more theory behind it a few examples and then let's do something with that so I was going through I've got piles of books I'm an avid reader I thought I could I could recommend this one's one have actually the most useful one probably is not just a theory book but one where there is practical stuff in there that people can get help from and in addition to that workbook there is um, a really good website which Kristen Neff has which is self-compassion.org which is linked to the workbook. And it has so many free resources. If you're into research, it has thousands of research links behind how this is being used in different places and exercises you can do. So those two go hand in hand, um, I think is a really useful resource.
0: Oh, that sounds absolutely brilliant. I agree. I really like things that are highly practical. I've talked on the podcast before about when I had a period of anxiety several years ago when I was in my Last role, but I don't think I've actually shared, I may have done, who knows. When I was in my very early 20s, I got hit by depression, probably from where my inner voice was being incredibly horrible to me. And I thought I should be hugely successful within minutes of having left university. And I remember having counseling, and the person, the counselor, recommended a book called The Feeling Good Hands book. And it sounds like a similar principle to the one that you've just recommended, where it explains a bit of the theory and then you have to work your way through some practical exercises. And I tell you, Tom, that set me up for the rest of my life, I think, doing that book. It was so incredibly helpful in my own time, just working through some really simple exercises that made a massive difference. So you have got me properly intrigued about this other workbook. It sounds excellent. Thank you for the recommendation.
1: I'm glad here and I'm I'm hopeful it'll be useful to a few people
0: as well thank you. I'm sure that it will and having shared all of this wonderful knowledge and advice with us it would be brilliant if you also wanted to tell us exactly what your services are so for anyone listening who thinks "Mm, I think I need some of Tom in my life or I need to bring him in to help people within our organisation what are some of the services that you offer?
1: So my main thing that I do is mental health and well-being training. So I will do one-to-one clients. A lot of my work, though, is with teams and larger, larger businesses. So everything from mental health first aid training. And I tend to incorporate um, my own lived experience of that into the theory and working with hundreds of clients about how they can apply that realistically into the organisation. But also I'll do training courses on things like uh, mindfulness, obviously self-compassion, things like digital well-being as well. So how we can make the of tech in our lives when it actually supports us. And uh, yeah, my website is tom-cleary.co.uk, which has a long list of things I do on there. But I'm also very happy for people to contact me if people want to know about the best book or podcast or TED talk. One thing I do for a lot of my clients is I call it cutting through the noise. There's often thousands of resources out there. People go, right, I want to learn about this topic. And I'll Google it and go, I have no idea where to start. There's too much out there. I have many people who email me and say, I'd like to know about this thing here. Can you recommend a really good podcast on sleep, for example, or mindfulness or whatever it might be? And so feel free if you don't want anything from me, but you just want to know some information. I do this because I've been on that unpleasant end of the, the burnout. I've seen what it's like. If I can help somebody by applying to an email, I'm always very happy to, to do that as well.
0: Oh, that's really kind. Thank you, Tom. And are you very active on LinkedIn? Are you happy for people to contact you on there as well?
1: Absolutely, yes. So um, you'll find me under Tom Cleary Coaching on LinkedIn. I say active. I I exist on LinkedIn. I'd love to spend more time doing it, but I tend to be running the workshops and things rather than doing that part of it. So it's on my list of things to get better at doing. But yes, I I am on LinkedIn.
0: Brilliant. So I will include a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. Well, Tom, it has been fabulous having you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, thank you very much.
0: So what did you think of what Tom had to say? I hope it's given you lots of food for thought. And if you enjoyed the episode today and found it helpful, please do leave a rating and review for HR Coffee Time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would love to help as many people as possible through these free weekly career tips that are shared on the show. And I know ratings and reviews make a real difference in encouraging the podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify to suggest HR Coffee Time to people who haven't heard of it before thank you so much. And I am looking forward to being back again next Friday with the next episode.